Good to be with you on this 4th of July weekend. Hopefully you have some fun planned with friends, fellow Hartner family. Um, hey, uh, we, our family, we jumped into a new thing this summer. A swim team, all right? Now, uh, Robbie is our nine-year-old. We have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old. And uh, Robbie jumped into swim team. We didn't know anything about swim team uh, before we got into it, and now we know a lot about swim team. Any swim team people that have experienced that phenomenon before? Yes, yeah. It's uh, in Olathe East swim team uh, team, Olathe East swim team, and this is a picture of Robbie, my nine-year-old, and his coach, Coach Luke. Now, um, it's daily. It's, uh, he's nine and ten, so he doesn't have to get up at the crack of dawn to do these swimming practices, but he is like a 9.30 to 10.15, Monday through Friday, swimming practice. And uh, he's a good swimmer, but he didn't know any of these strokes, like any of the things to help you get be a successful swimmer. Uh, and uh, we missed the first two or three practices, but we got there on practice number four and realized this is a big deal. He's been calling them TLs for a reason. Uh, he's a funny kid, and here's what TLs meant. Torture lessons. <laughs> so Anna and I, my wife and I, are feeling a little bad about this, like, TL, Monday through Friday, TL that we've been putting him through. And uh, he persevered. He got through the first week. He got through the first nine or ten days. Got through a swim meet where he got to experience kind of what that was like. And things had changed. And he said to me, Dad, they're, they're now NABTLs. I was like, what? what? It's not as bad torture lessons, which is uh, really funny. He's, uh, he's funny. Uh, and uh, so he kept going. He persevered. But here's the deal. Um, Coach Luke, can we put that picture up one more time? Coach Luke? This is a certain kind of relationship, a coaching relationship, and that's what I want to talk about today, coaching relationships, but not just one athletic kind of coaching relationship. Uh, we have coaching relationships, relationships that happen in the workplace. You're mentored by someone, um, things like that. You uh, might have a, a coaching relationship that is different than that, but the one that I want to major on today is the parenting coaching relationship. Lots of coaching happens in the home when you're parenting, being parented, were all the products of some parenting and coaching that happened. Uh, and, uh, and I want to just throw out some models over there. Three models and uh, one unmodel. Okay, so here's a, here's a chart. There's more than this. But one of the models that, uh, and there's a little bit of an uh, explanation here. Responsiveness, demandingness, that's kind of a weird word, I know, uh, but are on the axes here. Uh, and uh, one of the quadrants is just this. It's authoritarian parenting. This is characterized by the, because I said so. You know, there's not a whole lot of rationale given. It's just that this is what I asked you to do. This is what you do. Why didn't you do it? And we just go around it. We, we're just a broken record. Because I said so. Command and control, if you want to think of some other words that might typify that kind of parenting. Personally, I think I grew up in an authoritarian household. I told my parents this morning that I was preaching on parenting. So we'll see how that goes. It's my soft critique of your parenting. Um, there's another quadrant uh, over here, and this is permissiveness. Uh, Mom and Dad, here's my win. I'm really glad you were not permissive, overly permissive, because here's what permissiveness does, is just whatever you want. Laissez-faire. Like, you just do you, I'll, do, I'll watch you do you, and we'll see how that goes. And if it goes poorly, that's okay. 
You know, I feel like these are kind of extremes that I'm critiquing here, and there's all sorts of in-betweens, right? Okay, there's in-between spaces between those two, for sure. Now the unmodel is here the uninvolved. I don't care. Uh, absent parenting, uh, you know, free-range parenting is a concept that folks throw out there. Now I'm not critiquing free-range parenting, helicopter parenting, any of those parenting styles today, because here's why I bring up the uninvolved parenting style. Not because I want to throw rocks at it, but because actually, with different facets of my own leadership and parenting, I do this. I like put my head in the sand about something because I don't want to get involved. Because that's a little scary to think about talking about. Or that's a little unknown to me. And so I name it because I think it represents something that we all do from time to time. It's not just a mode of parenting, but it's something that can be descriptive of how I handle things. Um, the last quadrant here is authoritative parenting. Now these words are very similar. The last few letters are the only difference. Don't ask me why uh, the powers that be decided those words would mean vastly different things. We use authoritarian as a adjective to describe a certain regime on the other side of the world. That's a joke. They're not really a joke, but like dictators rule regimes and they're authoritarian by nature. That's why it's because I said so. But authoritative is very different. Authoritative is, let's discuss it. Uh, it's been termed positive parenting, and before we throw a lot of rocks at this model, I, I hope you leave today feeling a sense of, oh, that's an option. That's something that I can employ in my leadership, whether I'm in the workplace, or whether I'm at home with my kids, or whether I'm uh, managing a different project in the neighborhood, you know? Things like that. Are you with me so far with these models? You still good? Okay. Well, um... Coach Luke, let's throw the swim team back up there onto these models. If he was authoritarian, he would say, it's the backstroke, do 100 meters now. Uh, if you can't figure it out, Robbie, Google a video, come back next week, do it right, because I've got other swimmers to tell what to do. You know? <laughs> that's not Coach Luke. Thank goodness that's not Coach Luke. Uh, permissive Coach Luke would have, uh, would have said, you know what, it's not a big deal that you didn't uh, do the do the butterfly leg kick frog thing right you know it's okay it's not a big deal it's not a big deal until you get to Wednesday night and it's the swim meet and you learn learn what the dreaded letters DQ mean you've been disqualified from an event because you weren't properly trained but the permissive coach Luke would have eh, you know whatever 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 works doesn't really care about the results you know now what I do want to highlight here is the results and the standards are high here you expect a lot out of the people you're leading in this environment. You go up here uh, and it's authoritative and what I want you to feel in here today is we're not lessening the standards. We're expecting the same amount of excellence uh, and this is what Coach Luke does with Robbie and with all the swimmers on the swim team. Is they work hard. They do the drills and every race day they're looking, did those times improve? And that's the goal. Did those times, and they celebrate it when they improve. And if they didn't, they just go back to the drawing board and figure out what can we do to make this helpful. Uh, I had a parent that I was chatting with, and she said, oh, here's maybe an example of my permissive parenting. My kids, when they got to be teenagers, there were two girls, they just, uh, they would mess with each other, and I told them, figure it out. Like, I want you to be able to figure it out. And she would leave, and she realized, now that the, her girls are in her 30s, that I, I just kind of, I was permissive with their fighting with one another. I, they didn't have the tools to learn how to mend things and be on the same page relationally after a conflict. 
And I left them to figure it out, but they didn't know how to figure it out. So that's maybe an example of, of these kinds of parenting. Um, <clears throat> now, there's a lot of parenting language and imagery in Proverbs. Uh, sometimes it's literal, like moms and dads, sons and daughters. And sometimes it's just uh, metaphorical. But I want us to look at a couple things here from Proverbs. And this is in Proverbs 23, verses 22 to 25. Take a look at what Solomon writes. He says, Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. Look at all the verbs there. Listen to your father. Do not despise your mother. And Solomon is saying, buy as much truth and those other attributes as you can and hang on to them because they will benefit you. Now there's uh, other times that Solomon talking to kids. There's other times where Solomon talks to parents. And this is one that's uh, been misused and misinterpreted, but I want to unpack this. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, uh, some of the words here we've got to understand before we really unpack what this verse means. Shavat is the Hebrew word, and it literally means a stick, and that's the word for rod, but it figuratively symbolizes authority. Okay, so that's the word shavat. Uh, the next word to understand in that verse is discipline, which is musar. Now, musar is literally to coach, and it's a combination of instruction and discipline. So when you put these words together, when you look at that verse with both those Hebrew words in it, you see that, yes, there's a stick involved, but it's at the best of instruction. And these two things go hand in hand. Authority and instruction. It's a fascinating concept to kind of understand it. Tim Keller, uh, one of my favorite authors, theologians, he passed away a couple months ago, and one of the things he wrote about this verse and Proverbs in general is this. One of the great dangers in reading the book of Proverbs is to every time you see the word rod, think that it means to spank. Now, certainly in ancient times, the word rod included corporal punishment, but you're making a huge mistake if every place you see the word rod in the book of Proverbs, you think it means corporal punishment. Every kid is different and unique and made in the image of God. We ourselves, having grown up in homes, are different and unique from one another. And because of that, there's a different disciplinary approach to every kid, to every person. Some kids will respond to a stern word. Some kids respond to a look. And the word rod is included there, but that's not prescriptive. It's descriptive of an authority that a parent brings to a relationship. It's for each parent to decide how they'll best connect with their kid, right? And this is where you earn your keep as an authoritative parent. It's not easy out of those four models. Can we throw that up there one more time, the four models? <clears throat> I think these other three models are generally easy. This one requiring very little effort, obviously. But these are a little bit easier than this one, which is the long road that says, let's discuss this, let's process this. Let me figure out how best to discipline you, to train and teach you. If you simply look at the word discipline, you'll just notice that like the root word is disciple. That, that is a, a student, someone who learns. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And I was thinking of uh, some of you who have teams at work and projects that you're leading people to get stuff done. And uh, Tim Elmore uh, writes this story in a book called A New Kind of Diversity. Tim Elmore has been writing and thinking about Gen Z and millennials and the interaction. Our, our workforce has a growing disparity in terms of the generational gap. 
And he tackles some of this in this quick story. It's not on the screen. I want you to listen to it. He says, I recently met with Brianna, a young professional who is six years into her career. She had just left her job in search of something better. And when I asked, asked her why she'd resigned, her response was telling. This is what Brianna said. I could tell that my supervisor didn't believe in my potential or my future at the company. He didn't say this out loud, but, of, but all of his actions revealed he didn't trust me with the projects he'd given me. I tried to imagine working at this place five years from now, but I couldn't do it. Plus, this job isn't pandemic proof. I gotta find a job where I'm in charge of something like Uber Eats or DoorDash. My last boss wasn't about to let me take charge of anything. Tim goes on to write this. Interestingly, I encountered Shane, Brianna's former supervisor, five weeks later. In the course of our conversation, I mentioned that Brianna didn't feel like her boss believed in her, trusted her, or expected much of her. Shane's reply to this comment was equally revealing. He said this bluntly. I didn't believe in her. I don't think she was ready to take on the workload we needed to get done. And I was afraid it would cost us dearly. It was a blessing in disguise that she left. Imagine what being led by someone who does and doesn't believe in you feels like. Like set aside the fact that she could do or not do the job and that side of the equation. But just imagine the tone and tenor of a working relationship where you could just tell that this person doesn't believe in you. The younger generation, whether they're our kids, Gen Z, they can see it. They can sense it when they're not trusted or someone doesn't believe in them. And that's a growing reality when it's in our homes. Like, I've got a one-year-old. She's aware of very little in terms of my belief in her at this stage. But I've got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. They have a growing sense that dad believes in them or not. And maybe here's the, uh, the thing that makes authoritative leadership expensive to do and hard to do is this, is we've got to believe that the people we're leading, whether it's in our homes or in the workplace, believe that they can be formed, that they can be made better by our intuitive, tailor-made leadership of them. And here's what I think. I, I think they'll believe it when we believe it. There's a third mention of discipline and parenting from the Proverbs, and it's the one I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking. Here it is in uh, Proverbs 29:17. Discipline your children, and they will give you peace. They will bring you the delights you desire. Now, every parent in the room should have like had a yes, peace. You know, <laughs> peace. It's the outcome guaranteed by this verse. Discipline your children, and they will give you peace. And then it gets even better. They will bring you. They will bring you the gifts, the, the, the delights you desire. I looked this up, delights, in the Hebrew. I, uh, I didn't make a slide for it. It's just too funny to even put in print. It just means giddy. Can you imagine just being giddy at like the delight and the peace that's in your home because of a disciplining relationship? Like this sounds so other to how disciplining your children goes, right? Those three words, I don't know what they conjure up for you, for one generation, they conjure up corporal punishment, discipline your children. For another generation, it's uh, sending someone to their room for a time out. Uh, and yet another, it's, well, there's disciplining my child is no screen time for X number of hours or days. There's, uh, there's words to understand here in this verse that help us make sense of it. Yasar is the word there for uh, discipline, and it means to admonish, warn, instruct, 
Discipline is about teaching, instructing. Discipline your children and they will give you peace and they will bring you the delights you desire. And then look at the result of discipline. They will give you peace. Um, I don't know about you, but most of the discipline in children's situations don't generate peace here or peace later, and they become difficult to figure out how to make a positive experience. I think it's because we've misunderstood discipline for a long time. We've viewed it as punitive, punishing rather than formative and instructive. Discipline is not about bending a person's will to conform to mine. It's about sensing their need and providing for their growth. Discipline is about the instruction of a person's mind and heart, not the destruction of another's will and spirit. Now these can be all over the board. You might have little ones at home that are biting you or other people right now. That's real. You know, you want to stop the biting before they're in elementary school. Or you might have teenagers and curfew's been broken like as a repeating deal and it's like, this is, these are very different and then there's everything in between as well. And I, I want to use some science today just to kind of help you understand what we've learned as a society about what's happening in these moments when we're disciplining, instructing our children and why it can go south sometimes. And it's going to require you to, to, to do something with your hands, but this is your thinking brain. Everyone kind of just make a fist if, you, if you're willing. Okay. And this is your feeling brain, all right? And just cover up your thinking brain with your feeling brain. Thinking brain, you can uh, dislodge your hands for a moment. Your thinking brain is where you make decisions. Um, rational part of your brain. Your feeling brain is not as rational, but it wants to protect your body, your emotions, and this is what it does. It kind of protects. This is when things are calm, is this is what's going on. Now, when somebody bites somebody within your home, uh, and there's not an animal involved, you get involved. I guess you get involved even when an animal bites. You know, whatever. We all get involved when something's biting something, and this is what's happening. Somebody's afraid because somebody's hurt. And in this moment, this is not good. I'm protecting my life right now because of the biting that's happening. And if you're the kid and this is happening, and then your parent engages this situation, you're mad that anybody's biting anything but an apple. You're just like, what is happening? If you're me, right? You're like, who's biting who? And how long has the biting been happening? And when will it stop? And there's a lot of tension going on, escalating tension, and it's not, not helpful to getting things moving forward. Science, uh, Daniel Siegel does a great, uh, if you have a teenager, Brainstorm. is an incredible book by Daniel Siegel. No Drama Discipline, he wrote with uh, Tina Payne Bryson. Um, that's an incredible book if you've got kids of any age. <clears throat> but this thinking brain and feeling brain, what needs to happen is this needs to, this energy needs to dissipate. It dissipates in a few ways. One, exercise. <laughs> like if you get active, the adrenaline coursing through your veins actually like does something. So maybe you tell a kid to run a lap or whatever it takes. Do some push-ups, you know. I sat in a therapy office and did push-ups once because my brain was doing this and my counselor saw it happening and asked if I wanted to do some push-ups. And I said, I think I need to do some push-ups, is what you're telling me. <laughs> uh, and uh, and that, that helped this happen. Another thing that helps this happen is, uh, is time. Time, just literal time. So I was at a, a residential house for teens who are um, uh, just in long-term residential treatment for various issues. And they had a calming room. This is uh, an organization here in Kansas City, great group of people. And... Um, 
And there was a calming room. The calming room had some fidgets in it, had an art table in it, had some music that they could play. And there was an adult that was there outside the room watching, just making sure that everything was good and that this was a great calming experience for this person so that they could re-engage with the people downstairs. <clears throat> I've had people say this to me, whether it's a manager or my wife or even my kids. They have helped me when they've said, Dad, I think you're feeling something right now. And do you need, what do you need? And it's like, it's a little embarrassing, but I'm actually really proud that they have this emotive language for understanding when their feelings are doing this and when their dad's feelings are doing this. Because what's going to help a person who's got this going on is just one calm person. That, that's you, mom and dad. That can be your kids. That can be your kids with one another where they start to notice, okay, I can help this person calm down, but I can't do that until I've regulated my own emotions. I feel like just to make this really sticky, you should do this because it kind of feels like a turkey. So will you do this with me? Only 10 of you are doing it. That's okay. I promise you're going to remember it if you do this. <laughs> um, does that make sense? So science is like catching us up to like what God designed our brains to do. We have some logical, some rational, and also some emotional parts of our brain, and they work together to help us process and deal with life. Now, um, that's not how I've used the dreaded timeout, you know, or how it was used on me. But this calming time is a really incredible phenomenon if we can figure out how to use it. Now, many of you are uh, signed up to run the half marathon in October. And, uh, and there's a different kind of coaching involved there. And the coaching looks like this, a sheet of paper that maybe has made its way to your calendar. And there's a long run that happened yesterday, I'm sure. And um, I, I'm not running this race, but I did run the half marathon Hospital Hill a few years ago. And I had this moment where um, I realized Hospital Hill has three to four major hills, and uh, I was not ready for these hills. And I tried, I trained, and then race day came, and I made it through the first hill, I made it through the second hill, and I found a pace coach, a Garmin pace coach to follow, and there were 10 or 15 of us uh, following his, like, he can run and hold a pole up high, so you can kind of see, you can see him at all times. He's a phenomenal coach. And he started to yell at us in a way that we needed to hear him, not because he was mad at us at the, this major two-mile hill. He goes, hey, guys! Your legs? What are they feeling right now? And I remember thinking but not saying anything. They feel like they're on fire because this hill is insane. Uh, and all of us just looked at each other like, what is he talking about? Uh, and uh, then he goes, well, your, your legs, they're lying to you. <laughs> I was like, they have more in them than you think they do. Then they're letting on. And it just went on. I was like, my legs are lying to me? Didn't know my legs were capable of moral decisions. But it was just fascinating. I was like, oh, here I am. So here's what coaches do. Coaches help the athlete do what they don't want to do so that they can become the kind of athlete that they want to be. I wanted to be the kind of person that ran the two-mile hill without stopping. That's what I wanted to be. But I didn't want to do the thing on the hill, which was simply believe that I could do it and take one more step and think that I could do it. Parents, coaches in any fashion. We do the same thing. We have people that we're leading and they want to be this healthy person and we want to help them get there, but they just don't know how to do what they need to do today to get there. And we get to be the kind of people that help them do that. 
Good coaches help you shift through your feelings and engage your brain. They help you figure out how to move through those overwhelming feelings and be the kind of person you want to be. And in our humanity and our self-set limits, we don't think that we can do all those things, but the people outside of us who see us think that we can. The um, critique of this model of parenting, can you throw our parenting slide back up here, the quadrants, is that this is kind of soft. And literally they are called soft skills, like relational skills, I get that. But this is critiqued because it, uh, you've got problems today. And authoritative parenting doesn't fix your problems today or in three months. It's the long view, and it takes some time for you to figure out, that didn't go well when we discussed it. What well, can I try differently to discuss it differently next time? Uh, when are we going to address the elephant in the room that uh, this happened? I'm just supposed to breathe deep and exercise until they smile, and then what? The problem still exists? They're going to have forgotten that this happened in the first place, and they're going to bite someone else tomorrow. You know, like, it feels like the problems don't go away. And here's the news. They don't overnight. But through repeated engagement and understanding that this needs to happen, that some processing needs to happen when both people are calm is, uh, is important. Some of you are in a place right now where you need good behavior today and not in six months or three years like you need it today. And there are combative personalities that make parenting really, really challenging, to the nth degree challenging. One of the hardest things you'll ever do is parent. But no one, no one knows how to discipline, to form, instruct your child like you do. No one on planet Earth has been given that task except you. Now, um, a Jesus' first life, which we talk about here at Heartland a lot, includes your parenting. And Jesus, while not being a parent, did engage with some bombastic, varied personalities in his time here on Earth. Uh, here's a moment from Jesus' coaching career, his disciplining career, and how he trained his adult kids, if you will, his disciples. This happens in Luke chapter 9. I want you to read it with me. Or read it uh, to yourself. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. It says resolutely because this was the last turn. He'd been to Jerusalem before, but this was the final time. He was focused on what was happening in Jerusalem at this final time, his death. And that, all that would happen here at this moment. So he's focused on getting to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, these are two of the closest disciples in Jesus' cadre, by the way. And they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them. I'll read that one more time so we can get the gravity of the lightning bolt button that these guys want to have in this moment. Do you, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans? It's like, what part of Jesus' kingdom coming to earth, inviting everyone in, did you miss that you want to scorch earth? a Samaritan village right now. Like, that's what you want to do? I love Jesus' response. Um, it's, uh, it's like we don't know the words that he says. I wish we did. We don't know the content, but we know the headline, and then the headline is this. He rebuked them. He gave them a reality check, basically, and said, we don't do that. You know? Here's what he says. Uh, Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went to another village. 
it's kind of like um, in my house, I've, I've said in the past, hey, we're, we're water people. We drink soda once in a while, but we're water people. Or uh, another one is, uh, hey, we're, we're nice. When people are mean to us, we're just nice. We're, just, we're nice. The Matthews are nice. Even when people are mean to us, we're nice. It's like Jesus is just saying to his disciples, hey, I know you wanted to like destroy a village, but we don't do that. And we're going to Jerusalem for much bigger, important things. It seems uh, trivial, comical that Jesus would do that, but he, he doesn't really spend a lot of time unpacking it with them. I'm sure it's something they never forgot. And it became a story that they recollected. But this momentary lapse in their character and judgment isn't going to be shamey. It's not going to last long. Jesus just says, you don't get it, but now you do. Let's keep going with the important task ahead. They don't get kicked out of the discipleship crew. I was uh, chatting with, uh, at a swim meet, actually, with a fellow Heartlander, and, uh, and she says, you know what? We're like guardrails. Parents, parenting, we're, we're guardrails. I was like, oh, that's a really helpful picture. Like the guardrails don't drive the car. Our kids are the car, or they're on the highway headed down, and there's guardrails, and we're the guardrails that make sure that they don't go this way or this way. And I, I said to this parent, I was like, have you noticed guardrails lately? And she goes, no. I was like, they're not pretty. Like, they're banged up. <laughs> we started to, like, oh, this metaphor is awesome. This is so true. Like, there's a car, and it ends up in a guardrail, and there's a huge dent forever in the life of that guardrail uh, because of this car. And sometimes it's this car that caused this car that was innocent to get into the guardrail, and so there's just so much activity on the roadway to causing these guardrails to get beat up and dinged. And parenting can feel a bit like that. You're getting dinged here and there. You're just like, is this, is this right to hold this space right now for my kids? Because it hurts. And I don't know when I get to stop being a guardrail, when they're going to stay in the lanes. But I'm here. I'm devoted. I'm committed to being the guardrails. Now I want to um, maybe turn the tables for a minute. on This, this might feel like a leap, but... Um, I think it's appropriate. Uh, the scriptures say that we were enemies with God. There was a moment in our lives where we were enemies with God. We were on the road and we were doing whatever we wanted to do. This way, that way, banging into the guardrails. And God had some guardrails, like some ways to live that framed in our living. Ways that we were supposed to live. And Scripture pinpoints the moment in history when God stepped into our world and saw our behavior. And here's his way of, mis of handling our misbehavior, our sin. Paul writes a letter in Romans, and I want you to look for this phrase, at just the right time. Because it's like we were flipping out in a tantrum, experiences, experiencing the consequences of all the ways we have been misbehaving and doing our own thing over and over. We chose independence over dependence on God, and we still do this every day. But there was a moment, and it's here in Romans 5, 6, and 8. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. There's this moment where we've been parented and loved by God. We were doing this, doing whatever we wanted to do. And another party, God, had this calm, 
logical, loving mindset. And he engaged with us and and what made his like logic possible was this intense feeling. Because this this was still on, his feeling brain was on, but it was love. It was love that made him do something that defied logic, you know, sending his own son. There was love that helped him do that, that defined his actions. That was his approach to us. He's disciplining us for sure, every day, day in, day out. But he's doing it through lovingly, tenderly instructing us. And this is the invitation, moms and dads, to form our own kids through love. Not by punishing, but by allowing God's love to form us, allowing his love to form our kids. And I, I'm curious, just uh, I'm going to tell a story here in a moment, but I want you to be thinking, what is God forming in you in this moment? What's he disciplining, instructing in you in this moment? I was uh, 10 or 11 when uh, I met the Robertsons. I was a little younger than that. They moved into our next door when I was eight years old. And uh, the Robertsons came over, and they had three kiddos, and they'd gotten into baseball cards, like I was into baseball cards, and the packs were in the living room floor, our living room, um, and there were cards all over the place. We were trading cards, looking at cards, and they were scattered everywhere, and I just remember seeing the couch there and a stack of cards here, and I just realized I could flick a card under the couch. So I did. I just kind of flicked a card when no one was looking under the couch, and was like, no one saw me do that. I'm going to do it again. Flicked over a couple more cards. I, I don't know how many cards I hid under the couch that day. The Robertsons went home next door, carried their stuff home, and I got my new cards from my treasure chest, you know, under the couch. Put them in their sleeves, was enjoying them, and my dad walked by, and he could see that there were new cards that he didn't buy, that I didn't buy, you know. Um, I don't remember what lie I told, but that's, that's what you do. That's what I did. I'm sure I tried to pass it off like, they gave these to me, but it wasn't going to work, you know? It's my, I heard a parent say to me last week, I pray that my kids are terrible liars. I, I think I was a terrible liar in that moment. Uh, he said, um, I want you to pick up the cards, put them in an uh, envelope, and take them next door and give them back right now. And I wanted to avoid this walk next door with everything inside of me. I would have done a million chores to get out of this walk next door to give these cards back. I remember walking over, I explaining I'd taken these cards from them and giving them back. And when I got home, there was no further conversation about this. There was no, I was not grounded from anything. In that moment, my training program, program that my dad had to get me to being a kid who doesn't steal stuff included a pop-up lesson of, like, hey, we've got to fix this now. We've got to go next door. We're going to make sure you rectify this and learn that we don't do that. Matthews don't steal stuff. And, uh, and he did. He taught me the lesson I needed. It taught me the lesson I needed. What if, what if you and I saw these moments where God the Father is trying to correct something in us as formative, as restorative, as trying to get us to become the kind of people that we want to be. He's more interested in forming who we are becoming if we'll open ourselves up to his leading. 
So what is the thing that God might be forming, instructing in you this season? And just pause for a moment for you to reflect on that question. What is God disciplining in you, forming in you right now? Let's pray together. God, you see our formation differently than we do, and we are glad for that because you see what we could be, not what we are. You see our parenting, our school and workplace leadership, and everything in between. And You've promised to provide wisdom for anyone who asks for it. So we ask for wisdom in our homes, in our roles in life, that we could be people who encounter discipline with the mindset of forming and being trained and training as opposed to punishment, which is not like you. We're so glad that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you have grace and compassion. Your name, Jesus. Amen. Heartland, may you see the moments of discipline this week as a father lovingly guiding his children, you and I through the world we live in. Uh, Granted, this week there are a few more instructions to follow if you're involved with firecrackers on any level. (laughs) So have a safe and happy fourth, and we will see you soon, Heartland. Enjoy your time with friends, family. Take care. Bye-bye.